Good morning. Today we will be reading Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, that was my scripture reader, I guess, if we're, so, in the way that your mom is your bass player. So. You ever get a song stuck in your head and you can't get it out? And it's always like the worst songs, like Baby Shark or uh, Let It Go by Elsa, Never Gonna Give You Up. Anything 2010s by Taylor Swift or Justin Bieber. Like, who writes lyrics like, baby, 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 oh. But it gets in there and it gets stuck because it's a song. The classical education model, to be a little bit more serious, often uses poems and jingles and songs as mnemonic aids because the, you know, the presidents of the United States or the 50 states or the state capitals or whatever, as you're trying to commit that to memory, a, a song is a way of ingraining something into a level of your person that just trying to memorize facts does not do. And I'm sharing this because we come to the Psalms this morning as many, many Acts 29 churches just go through the Psalms in the summer and pick up where they left off the previous year. We're starting out and I think one of the reasons the Psalms are so beloved is because they're often called the songbook of God's people. Written over the span of 900 years, most of them during the reign of King David, the Psalms are the world's most famous collection of hymns and songs and spiritual poems. And I know when I say poems, we think of rhyme and meter, like uh, I do not like green eggs and ham, I do not like them Sam I am, I do not like them here or there. I do not like them anywhere. And we're used to this kind of like sing-song, jingly. It's got a rhyme at the end of the lines, unless it's a haiku, and that's a whole different thing. But Hebrew poetry, as we come to the Psalms, is not arranged around rhyme and meter in the same way as like later poetry is. It's often characterized by symmetry and parallelism. And so actually in the graphic that we've done for this particular series, you see symmetry in the graphic. You see mirror images several different ways in this graphic that's actually meant to communicate visually to you. This is often what the Psalms are doing in writing. So you have things like synonymous parallelism, where two lines in Hebrew poetry, two lines in a psalm will say the same thing, but say it two slightly different ways to help you remember one truth. Or there is like an antithetical parallelism where two lines will say the opposite things, again, trying to cement one truth. Um, one of the key features of the Psalms, again, just kind of overviewing quickly for you, is that they, they express the whole range of human emotion. So you can turn to any given psalm and see a psalmist like David or Asaph or Moses in some instances pouring out 
these emotions like fear or even anger, frustration, sometimes frustration with God, often frustration with circumstances. You see them pouring out uh, euphoria, discouragement, depression, relief. And I think one of the reasons why we so naturally gravitate to the Psalms in all different kinds of life circumstances, in all different seasons of life, is because the emotions that are expressed here resonate perhaps unlike any other book. I remember shortly after 9-11, and as you turn to different news stations like CNN or MSNBC or whatever, and, and even a couple weeks later when they brought NFL football back, the commentators were often talking through, like, how do we process the events that we've witnessed, that we've gone through unprecedented in our country? And, you know, it's like NFL Live or something like that. And they're literally quoting from the Psalms of, like, even though the mountains be hurled into the midst of the sea, I will hope in you. And I think it's because as we go through things, things that we read in the Psalms deeply resonate with how God has designed us. A little, another little detail that you'll see here, and it's in the graphic, but depending on which theologian or commentator you talk to, there are basically five, six, or seven different types of psalms. We've chosen five basic ones, starting from the top left, representing a song of lament. Beneath that, a psalm of praise. Next to that, a royal psalm. Next to that, a psalm of thanksgiving. And what we'll look at this morning in the top right there is a psalm of wisdom. A psalm of wisdom. So as Micah just read for us, Psalm 1 is basically asking this question or these couple questions leading off 150 of these poems. And the questions we're meant to consider are whose wisdom are you following to pursue the good life? Where does that wisdom actually lead you as you are in pursuit of the good life? And I'll give you this theme. I think Psalm 1 is, here's one big idea. The psalmist is saying, follow the wisdom of God into a life of fruitful joy. And that's what we all want, okay? You could walk outside these walls. You could talk to one another. Everybody wants a fruitful life, a flourishing life, a thriving life. They want joy. They want happiness. Now, we we attend to all different means to achieve those goals of a flourishing, happy life. But this, the very first of 150 Psalms, this is, the, this is basically God communicating to us saying, if you want a life of flourishing, if you want a happy life, a good life, here's how that can be received, okay? Um, these points will go quickly because there's a lot of parallelism here. But here's kind of how this lays out. Here's what we're going to look at. There are two people, two paths, two pictures, two products, two pivotal truths, and five practices. Okay? So a little curveball there at the end. Two people. So you notice this, that the entire psalm is a contrast between sinners and the righteous. And though sinners is not a word that we use often in our culture anymore, the most basic biblical word for sin or sinning or what a sinner is simply means to miss the mark. It's that basic, that basically God has set a target for our lives. And the idea of being a sinner is that I have, I have maybe shot at that target and missed, 
But in some cases, maybe I'm shooting at a different target altogether. But the idea is we, we fall short, we shoot wide, we violate a standard, we miss. And by the way, what is that target that God has set for us? To say it in simplest terms, the, the greatest commandment, God has said, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. And you know, friends, the, the essence of, of any sin, of every sin, is simply a failure to love. That we have missed the mark in loving one another as we ought. That's the essence of sin. So that's the word sinner. There, there's a couple other words here. As he says, do not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. That word wicked then um, has this idea of it can be negative behaviors. It can be negative thoughts, words, deeds, any of that. As we often confess, we are sinning against God, not only in what we do, but in what we leave undone. One person who studies these things, linguistics in scripture, kind of describes the word wicked this way. He says, it's the negative behavior of evil thoughts, words, and deeds, a behavior not only contrary to God's character, but also hostile to the community, and which at the same time betrays the inner disharmony and unrest of a person. Okay, so there's, there's this twisting, there's this missing, again, of negative thoughts, attitudes, emotions, behaviors that are not only rebellious to God, but are causing disruption, disharmony amongst human relationships. And then this word scoffer is just the idea of one who boastfully rejects instruction and reproof. There's, there's scorn, there's mockery, there's ridicule, first and foremost of God's standard and of God, but then also there's just a, a, a very scornful view Scornful attitudes, scornful words directed at fellow men, fellow women. And I think it's interesting, those three words, sinner, wicked, and scoffer, you see that in the very first sin in the Garden of Eden. That, that God has set this target. And there, for them, there was one command. And he says, just do this. Just don't do this. And the scoffer, the very first scoffer in the Bible that we're introduced to is this serpent and the serpent comes and is boastfully rejecting God's, rejecting God's instruction and reproof and saying, like, you don't have to do that. That's preposterous. Just do this other thing instead. And is setting up a different target and saying, do this with your life. And there's a twisting. And there's, a, there, there's an internal disharmony that erupts. There's an interpersonal conflict that disrupts. There's a, a now a conflict with God that erupts out of that. But that's the idea of sinner as we now encounter it throughout the Psalms. And then this, this balancing point or this balancing person is referred to as the righteous, which is the idea basically of someone who hits that mark. The, it's, the, it's the most basic idea of righteousness is that there is a standard and you are conform to that standard. You know, in the, the world of building and construction, it's very important that you get walls level, like perfectly plumb, so that as weight is put on top of them, they don't start bowing out or in or collapse under the weight of what's on top of them. So there's a standard, a level that's created. And the idea of a righteous person is you can hold your life up to that level and there is a coherence. It lines up, okay? That's the idea of righteous. And I actually think it's interesting that righteousness is described here in negative terms as like the righteous person is the person who does not do certain things. The righteous person is the one who deliberately avoids the path, the way, the worldview of sinners. 
And that brings us to the second point, which is the two paths. And again, you, you're, st- you're starting to see this contrast that the writer's laying out here, not only between the wicked, the sinner, and the righteous, but between two different ways or two different paths to live. You have the wisdom and the way of the world, and you also have the wisdom and the way of God's law. And I see this when he says, do not follow the, the counsel of the wicked or the way or sitting in the seat of, and these are, these are three different words. The, the idea of counsel is advice. It is, I'm telling you how to live. I'm telling you how to achieve certain ends. And so the idea of, of advice or counsel is that there are certain plans, there are certain purposes that the world has created, saying, live for this, go after this. And you are immersed in this like a fish in an aquarium is immersed in water, that you may not even step back and say, oh, I see that this is the counsel of people whose heart are set against God, but you just hear it every day. You see it every day. You're swimming in this culture every day. It surrounds you that there is a wisdom of the world. There's a way of the world. That word way meaning not just a a literal path or a literal way through the forest or something, but it's indicative of your conduct or a way of life. And that idea of a seat is literally just like a dwelling place. Like where do the wicked, where do the scoffers settle down? Where do they hang out? And there's this wisdom in the way of the world that basically if you're in the middle of this, it's like we're telling you how to live. We're telling you what to prioritize. We're telling you what to fashion your own personal plans around so that you hopefully are getting the kinds of things out of life that you want to get out of life. And then again, the psalmist gives us this contrast is there's not just the way of the world and the wisdom of the world. There's the wisdom and way of God's law. Because God's law, in contrast, God is also laying out his counsel for you. He's laying out his purposes for your life. He's laying out his plans and saying, don't walk that path. Walk this path instead. And I think like even as believers, is isn't it easy, especially if you get in sections of Scripture that are just kind of laying out the law and you're reading like all these requirements, all these prohibitions. It can feel incredibly restrictive. It can feel even a little arbitrary, maybe oppressive. We feel like, like where did God come up with some of these rules? And I think the Bible's own answer is that you have this God who is the designer and creator of you and your life. He's the designer and creator of all that is. He's also the God who wants to be known by us. So he gives us his book and he reveals himself. But I think of the law of God as basically like this instruction manual for how things work. He's like, I'm the one that made you. So I'm the one that, that, that kind of understands if you do certain things, they tend toward happiness and contentment and peace and kindness uh, restored and repaired and healthy relationships, and you do other certain things, and everything breaks. Over the weekend, I had to come in and reprogram this back keypad door that some of you have used to let yourself in. This back keypad on the catering door back here, it's this very intricate thing with all these codes programmed into it. And in even having the manual, I was like digging everywhere in these cabinets back here looking for this manual. 
And I'm like, okay, how do, I, how do I reprogram this thing? Turns out I have to take it off the door, take it all apart, get in the inner circuit board of this thing, basically use this little piece to short it out, to reset the memory, then put it all back together and then program it. And the way you do this is you have to put in a five-digit master code and then hit lock and then hit the position that you want to reprogram. So like position zero, 01, you can do up to like a couple hundred positions. So it's like zero, 01, lock again, and then the new five-digit code, and then that's all locked in. And, and I'll tell you, as, like, as complicated as this was, and it took like four hours to do this, if I did not have that instruction manual saying, do exactly this in this order, we're the ones that made this, we're the ones that designed how it remembers all these codes so that you can open the door. If I'm just winging it, I, you know, I'd still be out there trying to figure out like, how, how do I reset this thing? How do I put even one new code in here so someone can get in this building without a key to like clean the building after hours or make a delivery or something? Well, I, I look at the law of God like that, where he's saying there, there is a wisdom from your designer that he's given you that you can push up against. You can always be frustrated. You're telling me to do certain things I don't want to do. You're telling me not to do things that I do want to do. Or you can see it as even, even the law of God is a form of grace in our lives because we're seeing it is, it is a way to true freedom. It is the right list of Obligations. It is the right list of parameters that truly set us free to become Christ-like and to enjoy the life that God has given us. Now, between these two paths, how do you know which one you're following? I mean, we are literally immersed in the way of the world, the path of the world, the wisdom, the counsel of the world. We hear it every day, consciously or subconsciously. And most of you would probably also say, look, I, I have a Bible. I read it. I generally understand what it's saying. I, I try to follow it. I try to live by its wisdom. So how do I know whether I'm what the psalmist is warning against and I'm walking in the way of the wicked? Or how do I know if I'm following God? And the text actually gives us some helpful clues here because it basically shows you there are three ways to follow something. You can follow something with your head. You can follow something with your heart, or you can follow something with your will. And usually these three are connected. So when he uses the terminology like, blessed is the man who, and I'm skipping some intervening phrases, but blessed is the man who delights in the law of God. The idea of delighting in someone or something is a way to follow something with your heart, with your affections. Okay, and that may be a weird way to put it, but like if, if you're dating and you're kind of falling in love with something, you're delighting in this person, you want to spend time together, you want to figure out their purposes and their plans for life, you want to do things that honor them and that encourage them rather than things that cause conflict between you. So when you're delighting in something, when you're taking pleasure in something, finding favor in something, that's a way of following something with your heart. And you can just pause and say, like, what is it? The day-to-day I delight in. What brings me pleasure? Like, do I actually delight in the word of God, the counsel of God, the way it reveals his character and his works and his promises to me? Is that a joy to me? Or is something else my true joy, my true delight? He goes on and talks about a way to follow with the mind. And he uses the words meditate on. 
The idea of, a, of meditating on something, it's kind of just like, it's a little bit of a made-up word in Hebrew because the, the root word here for meditation is just like a low humming or low repetitive noise. You ever been in somewhere, like this is the way I'm wired, like if there's a low repetitive noise, I'm going to hear it and it just, it will drown out everything else. And I'm like, I know you're talking to me right now, but all I hear is this, you know, coming from this other place. But that's the idea of meditation of, of what you're doing in your thoughts. Is that kind of beneath it all, running in the background, there is this, this pondering, this devising, plotting, mulling over that is just repetitive. It's just like always going. And some of you may think like, I, I'm, I don't really meditate on anything. But the idea is like, what do your thoughts instinctively go back to that's just like that baseline noise in your head, in your thoughts, in your plans, that's, you default back to it over and over again. Because it's so important to your thinking and your priorities, you keep going back to it. That's the idea of meditating. And then the idea of following something with your will, he uses three words. He says, you know, you're walking, you're standing, you're sitting. Those are things that you're doing with your physical body. You know, to, to walk is to follow after or to behave a certain way, to stand, like I'm, I'm remaining here, I'm abiding here, you know, or sitting and like inhabiting. And those are all things that like I, I have this locomotion or I'm sitting, I'm, I'm here as an act of my will. And we'd be wise to look at those three things and just think like between these two paths, the path of the world's wisdom and the path of God's wisdom, which one of them captures my imagination so that it's a delight to my heart? Which one of them captures my mind, my thoughts? So I'm meditating, I'm mulling over it over and over again. Which one captures my will? So I'm willing to say, I will walk this way that God tells me to walk. I will stay when God calls me to stay. That brings us to these two pictures. And uh, another common feature that we'll find throughout the Psalms, and you do find this still in, in ancient and modern poetry, is that they're, they're word pictures. You know, very often poetry is not just saying something directly the way a narrative or history would communicate something. It's certainly not like an epistle or a gospel, but you find very picturesque language where a psalmist will say, you know, like a, a simile or a metaphor. They'll say, uh, I'm trying to illustrate this thing. It's kind of like this. And you see, that's what the psalmist does here with these two pictures. He's like, these two lives between the sinner and the righteous, between the path and the way of the wisdom of the world and the path and wisdom of God, here's what it's like. He says, the wicked and pursuing that path is like chaff that's scattered by the wind. And we don't have a farming culture here in downtown Denver. So if you don't know, a chaff is just basically the husk that surrounds every seed or every fruit of grain. And when it comes harvest time, the, the farmers are basically going to go through this three-step process of you, you go to the field and you reap, which is like cutting down the entire stock of grain. And then they thresh it, which often is as simple as like taking a big bundle of that grain that's been reaped and brought in. And they're often just like beating it on the ground. Or you can look this up and they're like, um, it's still in ancient cultures, they have these devices that like spin, 
with these knobs on them. And so you're just holding it still and it's like, you're just hanging on for dear life while these knobby things are like hitting the grain. And the idea is it's separating the whole grain thing and all this dust and all this stuff is stirring. But then you are able to discard the entire stock, which is not edible. But then there's still this one phase left and that is called winnowing. And that's where they would pick up these piles now of grain that have been created by the threshing process. And often, like back in ancient cultures, they would literally just put them in a, a wide, shallow basket and go outdoors and toss it up in the air. And the grain has weight and body to it, so it goes up and it falls back down. But the chaff is just like, and the wind just takes it and it blows away. Um, another illustration would just be like popcorn. You know, you see those kernels and the, that little kind of orangey brown part that like pops and is shed in that process. Like the actual seed is inside there. That, that orangey brown husk is like the chaff. And what the psalmist is saying here is that there is a period of time when your life is growing and you may even look like the grain, you may look like the seed, but a season is coming when you're revealed for what you actually are and the chaff is blown away. I mean, it's seen for what it is. It's, it's, it's worthless. It's dead. It's just this dry debris that was protecting the husk for a period of time, but now it's, it's useless. The, like the human body cannot process that. It can't digest it. It's not edible. It's not doing anything for you. And he's saying the, the life of pursuing the wisdom of the world is like that. By contrast, he says the, the life of one who pursues the wisdom and the way of God, he says, is like a tree rooted by streams of water. And I think that's a very important analogy. It's not just a tree, not just something that puts down roots, but, but a tree planted. So there's a deliberation. It's rooted. It's grounded. It's put somewhere intentional right by the stream of water. And uh, we were just flying again this past week over parts of the West. And you all have probably seen this from an airplane where it just generally you're just looking at a bunch of brown. It just looks very dry. Everything's kind of dead. Um, but you'll see these little ribbons of green kind of dotting the landscape. It's really easy to see from 30,000 feet. You're looking down. You're like, and you kind of intuitively know, even if you can't see it, like there's a creek there. There's a stream there. And this vegetation that was fortunate enough to be planted right next to the creek is drawing that life-giving water all the time and is able to grow. And he goes on and says, and it, it's producing its fruit in its season and it's flourishing and it's doing all these things that are healthy because of where it's rooted and because of what it's grounded in. Now, again, I want you to notice like kind of these poetic contrasts of these two pictures. You have chaff, dead, dry, small, flaky, useless versus a tree, like a fruit-bearing tree. You have something that's scattered at the end versus something that's rooted. You have this dead, dry husk versus something that's flourishing and fruitful and, and bearing something useful. Those are the two pictures, okay? Now, point four, two products. The idea now is like, okay, what are the outcome? What's the, what's the final product of two lives live these two different ways and we see, first of all, I'll get the negative out of the way. I mean, the Bible clearly says the wicked, the, the sinner, the wicked are exposed and destroyed. 
And I say exposed because, again, in the analogy of the chaff, that chaff for a long period of growth looks like something fruit-bearing. It, it looks like something healthy. You don't know until harvest season that it's actually just the husk. It's just the dry, inedible, useless part of it. And I think that's an important practical point because if you're going through life with kind of maybe self-righteous, maybe just a, a superficial way of evaluating other people's lives, you may often interact with lots of people who are kind, who are honest, who are patient, who are loving, compassionate, generous people. And you're like, these people don't seem so bad. Like they're not perfect, but they're basically good decent, ethical people. Are they sinners? Are they wicked? And what the scripture says is at the end, in, in some kind of final judgment, it will be revealed that, yes, they, they missed the target. They did not hold their lives up to the standard of God's word. And there is a kind of separation that's described here in verse 5 that says the wicked will not stand in that judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And I want you to just note, first of all, there is a judgment. It's a word that means a divine verdict that is rendered on a person's life. Did you measure up to God's standards that are clearly outlined in his law? Did you hit the target? And if not, then the second part of this product of the wicked, verse 6b, is the way of the wicked will perish. And just as God told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden at the very beginning of time as we know it, he's like, if you go your own way, if you live by your own rules, you will surely die because you are removing yourself from the life-giving presence of God. And you're, you're cast somewhere else altogether. Okay, so the... The wicked are exposed and destroyed, but the righteous, positively, notice that they're acknowledged and blessed. And I say acknowledged because verse 6a says the way, or the, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And it's a word that just means, um, not, not like cognitively, like I know it, I see it. But it's the idea of acknowledging. It's the idea of choosing or affirming, accepting. And the idea here is the judge, again, at the end of time, is, is looking at this alternate path that some have chosen, and he's rendering a divine verdict, but this verdict is innocent. Okay? He's saying the way of the righteous is established forever. And if you go back to the very first English word of this psalm, which is blessed, it is a word that means happy. Okay? There, there are two different Hebrew words for bless. One is like the way we would bless God, like praise, extol, give thanks to. This is the other word. And it means more than happy, but it doesn't mean less than happy. It's like if you are striving for happiness in life, if you want to be content and filled with joy, this is the word for you. Blessed are those who live this second way. Okay, if you're tracking with me at this point, you should not be thinking, sweet, I am headed for a lifetime of happiness and an eternity of bliss. And too bad for those other people who missed the mark. Because isn't the reality that we've all missed the mark? Isn't the reality that we, to some degree, in our own conscience even, we know some of the standards that God has set for our lives and none of us measure up? And again, just talking about sin just in terms of love, 
you and I have all failed to love God, to, to have an affection for him, a desire for him, a delight in him all the time. We have failed to love one another. And so this next point, I want to show you that, that the idea here, the, the separation is not that this group of people call themselves Christians and step over here and are like, I'm righteous, too bad for the sinners. What we should be thinking is every single one of us is a sinner and many times over a sinner because we've all failed to love so many times. And I want to show you, as we will throughout this series, that this whole psalm depends on something that may not be explicitly clear here. It isn't fully revealed until the pages of the New Testament. But let me show you these two pivotal truths. Because if you're thinking, well, now that you say it like this, that there's not this group over here called Christians, and they're self-righteous, and they think that they've hit the mark all the time, but they actually haven't, well, now you're thinking correctly. So if you take that a little bit further, you may be like, well, so, so what's anyone's hope for a happy life? What's anyone's hope for like eternal life if the reality is that nobody's getting the blessing described here? Nobody's righteous. Well, fortunately, you're wrong. Fortunately, when I think that way, I'm wrong. Because the first pivotal truth is that Jesus Christ is the righteous man described by Psalm 1. Study the life of Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you'll see he refused to live by the world's playbook. If there's anyone who ever entered this world and says, I will not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. I will not stand in the way of sinners. I will not sit in the seat of the scoffers, but my delight is in the law of God. And in his law, I will meditate day and night, and I'll allow it to be a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's Jesus. He perfectly delighted his heart in the law of God. It was his meditation. So every time he's opening his mouth, whether in a word of encouragement or, or comfort or even confrontation of sin, of self-righteousness, Jesus is living the life that we're all called to live. Jesus is living the life of Psalm 1. And yet the second pivotal truth, not only is Jesus Christ the righteous man described by Psalm 1, but Jesus Christ perished in judgment as if he was wicked. And there's no escaping this second fundamental truth that Jesus didn't just die. He was judged a sinner, a, a rebel, and he was executed. He perished, verse 6, okay? He was expelled and destroyed. And it wasn't merely the judgment of a Roman political leader like Pilate. It wasn't just the, the conclusion of a Jewish religious leader like Caiaphas. If you read the scripture, it's very clear. Jesus was crushed by the judgment of God. Okay, Jesus is receiving the punishment that Psalm 1 says is reserved for the wicked. Which again is that word that's like, I've turned in thought, word, and deed against God. I've created disharmony in my own soul, and I'm creating conflict with other people. Jesus died as if he was guilty of all that stuff. Why? If, if Jesus is the only one who matched up to Psalm 1, why is he judged as if he did not? And the scripture's answer is, Jesus died in order to reconcile us to God. Like our relationship with God is broken because we've missed the mark. 
our relationship with God, though, is not irreparably broken. I don't want you to think of the righteous and the unrighteous as like impervious groups that like if you're, if you're wicked, you're always wicked. If you've, if you've missed the mark that goes on your permanent record, yeah, apart from God, apart from Jesus, that would be how it'd go down is that's just on your permanent record and you got to deal with it. And so we're all exposed and we're all judged at the end of time. Psalm 1 is there at the beginning of the Psalms to point out there's actually none righteous. No, not one. Okay? And that's the bad news. We've, we've ruined our relationship with God because we've sinned. But the good news is the judge, the, the one who's pictured in verse 6 as the judge who's coming to make this separation at the end of the time. Like, here are the righteous that go to reward. Here are sinners who continue in their own way. They're going to a different kind of judgment. The, the, the good news is the judge himself comes off the bench takes the punishment that we deserve and releases us from our debt of judgment. So again, the righteous and wicked are not unchangeable groups. Like the New Testament says, God sent his son to justify the wicked, like to make righteous those who have missed the mark through faith in him. So those are two very pivotal truths in Psalm 1 and how we read it. It's not like, yay, I'm the righteous guy. But it's, God, I fall so far short, except for repentance, turning from my sin over and over again, and turning to the hope I find in Jesus, who is the person described by Psalm 1. So real simple, real quick, five practices. These are five things you can do with what we just talked about. Number one, delight in and meditate on the greatest commandment. In particular, Okay? You can delight in and meditate on all God's law. I'm just steering you toward one thing that Jesus himself, when the religious leaders of his day came to him and said, what is this whole thing about? These 613 or whatever commands of the Torah, what is it all about? What do you think, teacher, is the most important thing in here if we only get one thing? And again, he says, the one thing is love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And love your neighbor as yourself. How do, we, how do we love God? And we start meditating on like, what does it even mean to love you? Well, it means to trust you with my life. Not to be pushing up against you. It, it, it means to follow in your way. That's a way of honoring you and loving you. Um, it means to recognize when I'm doing things that are offensive to you and are hurting our relationship and confessing those. Uh, it means enjoying you, delighting in you. Not just being like, oh yeah, I, lo- I love God. But like, I delight in you. Like, I like spending time with you, God. And, and as we delight in and meditate on even one commandment this week, and just, again, we're, we're mulling it over in our minds, like, man, I'm called to love God. And that is, that is an unachievable thing in some sense, but it's also... Like, God wouldn't tell me to do something that he doesn't give me the resources to do by his spirit in a community of faith with his word open. So God, help me to delight in, because that's what the person who's blessed is doing, is they're making the law of God their delight, their joy, their treasure. And friends, as you do that, believe that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Like, believe that if I crack this book and I start meditating on Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor 
the way you love yourself. And you're like, yes, so that means this and this and this. Lord, help me to do that. Like, do you believe that God is a rewarder, that God gives joy, that this really is your instruction manual, and when you live by the instruction manual, your life on the whole is going to be much more satisfied, much more content, much more genuine, much more renewed. Okay, so delight in and meditate on the greatest commandment. Number two, second practice, evaluate how our culture is indoctrinating you to live a a particular way. Uh, I, I think we would all be wise to stop and I mean frequently, and just say, what path is the world telling me to walk? If this very first psalm is telling me that blessing is found not in going after the counsel of the world, it would be important for me to understand what is the counsel of the world and where does it misalign with the counsel of God's word so that I'm not walking that way. So we step back and just say, like, how is the world pressing me into its mold? In what ways am I buying into the world's agenda, the world's priorities, the world's ethics, the world's dreams of the good life in opposition to God? And, and I do hope it's very clear that these, these are not rhetorical questions. The world is indoctrinating you. As much as they're like, ah, don't go to church. They'll indoctrinate you. Well, of of course we will. Because it means teaching you doctrine. It means like giving you things that we believe like this is foundational. Like you can can build your life on this and it's like an oak tree sinking its taproot deep into something that is life-giving. So yes, we're indoctrinating you, okay? The world is indoctrinating you at the same time. They are catechizing you. They are giving you this list of questions and answers. And again, it's, if it were that obvious, we, we would all notice that it's going on. But they're like, here's the question about politics. What's the correct answer, everyone? Here's the question about sexuality right now in our culture. What's the answer, everyone? And we're taught to ignore what the Word of God says about all these contemporary issues. Uh, well, what about just like conflict resolution? The world has its playbook. People hurt you? Get rid of toxic people. Amen? And the Bible's like, well, maybe you should confront a toxic person. Maybe you should get some people to go with you and confront a truly destructive person. Maybe you need to work and work and work in the spirit of Christ to forgive even a toxic person. Okay? There's all kinds of things. Our definitions are right and wrong. But I'm saying we would be wise to practice Something where we're like, how is the world indoctrinating me? How are they telling me to live? What are they saying is wise? What are they saying is correct? What are they saying is wrong? How does that square with the word of God? I will not be catechized by the world. Point three, confront the world with the wisdom of God. Um, Friends, we, we desperately need to immerse ourselves in the book. And just say, again, not, not going to one place that, like, I think this talks about the will of God explicitly. The whole thing is the will of God. And he often tells it in stories. He often tells it in promises. He often tells it in unexpected ways like poems. But it's all the word of God. And you just want to get this in you because this is life-giving. This is like, this is like eating something incredibly healthy over and over and over again. And then resting your soul in it and just being like, I I don't know what else is true. I know this is true. I know this is God's word. 
And what we need so desperately in our Christian culture is not just like reactionary Christians of like Christian nationalism, like we, or the opposite. We need Christians who are catechized by the Bible, Christians who are indoctrinated by the Bible, Christians who are like, um, and it's one of our core values here, G-R-A-C-E, the R is rule of scripture. Like we want to know this book and confront the standards and the path of the world with the standards and the path that Jesus lays out for us and says, this is life, this is health, this is peace. Fourth practice, pursue God's version of the good life. Pursue it. I, I, I think th- there's an unfortunate overcorrection maybe that happened a while ago, like maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago, where the idea of, you, you know, you saw all these Christians like kind of doing the will of God, like very, the rules are very important to us. And Christianity reacted against that and said, oh, they're just a bunch of legalists because they're, you know, they're, they're doing the law of God, legalists. Pharisees. I think it was Dallas Willard that said, grace isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Okay. Grace isn't opposed to effort. If God says, here's the good life, do these things, meditate on these things, delight in these things, give yourself to these things. And you're like, okay, I'm actually going to do that. I'm going to meditate on them. I'm going to delight in them. I'm going to give myself to them. I'm going to go hard after God regardless of what other people around me are doing. That, that's what I mean by pursue God's version of the good life. And the older I get, the more I just want that of like, I don't, I don't care what you think of me. I just want a simple life of obedience. I want, I want to trust God to work it out when he says, if you do this on the whole, this is how your life is going to go for you because I love you. And these instructions are not ways to earn favor, to accrue standing with God. We have that through Jesus, by grace. But I want to pursue God's version of the good life. And then finally, learn to wait on the Lord. Um, And I want to address just like one detail here in closing, because it's bothered me all week, and maybe it bothered you. So in the picture that we're given, it says, if you don't walk this way, but you do meditate in the law of God and delight in the person of God, You'll be like a tree planted by streams of water. Your leaf will always flourish, and all that you do, you'll prosper. Like, did anybody see that when we went through that? In in everything you do, you will prosper. And, like, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you are like, that's how I feel. Man, I I am living an unbelievably charmed life right now. (laughs) Like, going on 45, and it's been, I mean, it just gets better and better all the time. Everything is prosperous. No, if you're like me, I'm like, that ain't true. That is, like, that's not, I I don't feel that at all. I don't feel like everything I do prospers. And I may be missing something, but I I think there's one of, like, three possibilities going on here with that statement. Everything you do, you'll prosper if you're living this way. Um, Option one is the verse is a lie. That's a possibility. I mean, I don't believe that because I think this is the word of God. But you could say it's just, it's just wrong. Like the psalmist was exaggerating. Like, like some stuff you do will prosper, but you don't want to put that in a poem in Psalm 1. So you say everything will prosper, right? Um, so you say it's just not true. Um, secondly, and I do think this is worth wrestling with. 
The second possibility is we're actually not that righteous. So we're actually not prospering. And, and I mean, now, not just the righteousness that comes by faith, but I mean the practice of our lives. It could be this whole mix of like, eh, there's a bunch of stuff in there I don't want to do. There's a bunch of this other stuff that I do want to do. And like God can deal with it. And I know that that's an attitude of our culture. So it may be that some of our lack of prosperity, of success, of feeling like we're flourishing and actually flourishing may have something to do with the fact that we're actually kind of a mix of, it's like Martin Luther, like Samuel Eustace at Peccator, we're, we're simultaneously saint and sinner. And sometimes we really like to lean to the sinner side and play around with some stuff instead of just confessing it and forsaking it. But I think there's another option as well. And that is that we don't think of prosperity the way God does. Maybe you actually always are prospering, but it doesn't look like prosperity. It doesn't feel like prosperity. And I think it's really helpful that he uses the illustration of a tree, because I don't know about you, but the trees in my yard from about October until April, they look dead. They look dead. And if you were to gauge the prosperity, the flourishing of that tree based on just a, a, a physical appearance from a distance, you would say, that is not healthy. It, it's dead. But in those months, God is training this tree to become prosperous in a different way because it's, it's got to go looking for water. So it's sending its roots down deeper. And you don't see this above the surface, but it's, it's hardening off. It's getting stronger it's adding another ring invisibly. And even pruning is a way of, you're like, well, I'm, I'm cutting off stuff that looks really good. And sometimes the Bible would go on to show us that prosperity is shedding the fruit, hunkering down, pruning some stuff that looked really promising, but God's like, cut it off, trust me. And then putting all your energy into sending those roots deeper and deeper into the word of Christ, and specifically into the gospel, the person and work of Jesus. Deeper into grace, deeper in your faith. And some of the most prosperous people I know as Christians who are really thriving and flourishing, they're, they're not the people you would step back and say, well, because they've had the easy life, they've had the charmed life. No, they're people that have gone through excruciating things. The death of a child, cancer, infertility, divorce, maybe a series of lost jobs, all, all kinds of things. But in that season where God's taking something away, they sent their roots down deep and they're like, God, I'm just going to trust. What else do I have? I'm just going to trust you and do the next right thing. And God meets them there in that place. And you, you encounter in that person a depth of character, a depth of hope, a depth of, of graciousness and gentleness that you don't get in a lot of people that it's like, you actually do seem like you've had a really good life and not been challenged. So I think that's it. I think we just don't think of prosperity as God does. So that's why I say this final practice is learn to wait on the Lord. And when prosperity doesn't look like it, step back and get with friends who know Christ and say, what do you think God might be up to in my life right now? Because I need your encouragement. I need his encouragement, okay? So again, one more time, that theme, follow the wisdom of God. You want a happy life? You want a satisfied life? You want to be with him forever? Follow his wisdom into that kind of life. Let's pray.